Uh, go ahead and open your Bibles, please, to the book of Luke. We're going to be in the 11th chapter of the book of Luke. Luke chapter 11. As you're turning to Luke chapter 11, there are a few things that you expect when you come to church. Now, I would normally have said, if I were preaching this message in 2018, I would have said there's four things that you expect every time you come to church. But the offering has been something that even as, as we watch virtually, sometimes we didn't have an offering there for a little while. We couldn't pass a plate oftentimes. And I've noticed that I don't, I don't believe we passed a plate yet here. We're still doing everything virtual over that. So you can't always count on an offering, uh, even in a Bible-believing Baptist church, although that's what we've been accused of, that that's the most important thing that's just not true but still I can't say that there are four things you expect every time you come to church but there are three things that you expect every time you come to church you expect when you come to church that you're going to sing if you stop and think about it corporate singing is one of those things that is almost uniquely associated with church uh, you don't corporate sing at your job at the plant. You don't go there every morning and sing, it's off to work we go or anything like that. You don't sing very often corporately outside of maybe the seventh inning stretch at a baseball game or when you're at a restaurant and the waiters and waitresses come up and sing off key happy birthday to someone that happens to be there. But most of the time in your life, you don't corporate sing until you come to church. We expect congregational singing. We expect special music do we not when we come to church? There's a second thing that we expect when we come to church. We expect preaching. How can you have church without preaching? I've heard it over the years multiple times, and please understand, I'm not saying that this is an absolute impossibility. But I have heard dozens and dozens and maybe hundreds of people tell me over the years, boy, we had such a good service last night. We didn't even have time for preaching. I'm here to tell you something. You didn't have a good service if you didn't have preaching because the Lord chose the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The simple truth of the matter is if you don't have preaching, you don't have church. Now, I'm all for testimony time, but I've told several pastors over the years, brother, you can let this testimony thing go on for 45 minutes if you want to, but I'm still going to preach before we leave unless you specifically tell me not to. The truth of the matter is preaching is part of a Baptist church or a Bible-believing church service, and it ought to be every single time. There's a third thing that we expect when we come to church. If you walk to your car after church and you said to your wife, you know, honey, we didn't sing a single song in this church service, you would almost feel cheated because we're supposed to use the preaching of songs, the singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs, sing with melody in your heart as unto the Lord. We're supposed to teach and admonish one another in those songs and hymns and spiritual songs. It's an integral part of our worship. And so if you walk to your car and say, you know, sweetheart, we didn't sing at all in this service, you'd feel a little bit cheated. If you walked to your car and you said, you know what, I'm kind of disappointed. Nobody opened up their Bible and preached the word tonight. You have every right to be disappointed. But there's a third thing, that if it didn't happen, you would feel as if you got shortchanged in the house of God, and that's praying. Praying is a part of our service. We pray to open the service. We pray over the offering. We pray before the message. We pray to close the service. We pray when we come to the house of God. Now, this is something that you, you may not understand or may not, uh, may not uh, realize oftentimes, but do you realize that the singers, no matter how good they are, that sing in the choir, that play the instruments, that sing specials, do you know they rehearse, they practice over and over and over? And you'll notice as you go through life, 
life that even some of the people that are the most talented are also the ones that insist on taking time to rehearse or practice even those in the choir. They come hours early. Some churches, I'm so amazed, they come two and two and a half hours early for church just to rehearse and practice the same songs that they've sung before. How do you feel when you go to a church and you hear them say, and I know you've seen it before, well, y'all pray for us. We ain't practiced. You ought to feel just a little bit shortchanged. The musicians are always striving to do a better job. Did you realize that preachers should be always striving and most of the ones I know are always striving to do a better job? Realize that all those books on homiletics that are out there, they're not read by the young whippersnapper with still wet behind his ears. They're read by those experienced preachers who don't want to just stand up and give the same message, the same type of message over and over and over again. They want to be better expositors, better preachers of the Word of God. They want to know how to study better and to put the messages together better. And preachers strive to be better at what they do when they stand in the pulpit. We expect singers to do better. We expect preachers to do better. And yet when it comes to prayer, we're pretty comfortable with where we are, aren't we? Think about it for just a moment. If we started up here with Brother Bragg and went all the way over to this side, do you know what? And we asked every single person in this auditorium, can you stand up and give me an answer to prayer? Do you realize every person in this room would be able to stand up and say, I prayed for someone that was in the hospital and they got better. I prayed for the Lord to provide this need and he provided this need. Every person in this building could list for me at least one answer to prayer straight directly from your prayer life. But I ask you this. Is there anyone in this room that would stand up and say, no matter how many answers to prayer that you were able to list, and you would say, you know what? I'm as good a prayer as I ever want to be. I pray just as well as I have any desire to pray, and my prayer life is completely satisfactory to Almighty God. I just don't think that's the case because we would all admit from this preacher all the way to the back row, we would all admit that we could do better at praying. We could have a more effective, a more fruitful prayer life. We could see more prayers answered. And by the way, if we don't have the right kind of prayer life, it's not God's fault. It has to be ours. The problem is not that we're unwilling to admit that we need to pray better. The problem is we're unwilling to ask. Because in this passage of Scripture, we're going to see one of the disciples, one of Jesus' disciples whose name is not given to us, that is going to ask a very simple question. He's going to say this, Lord, teach us to pray. And in this passage of Scripture, this one disciple is going to ask this one simple question to our Savior. And I do want you to notice as we read it that as soon as he asks, Jesus does not say, it's going to take me a little while to get back to you. He does not say, well, first off, you've got to get this straightened out and that straightened out. No, as soon as he asks, Lord, teach us to pray, Jesus immediately begins to teach. The problem isn't that Jesus isn't willing to teach us. The problem is we're just unwilling to ask. Because in asking, we have to admit that our prayer life isn't what it ought to be. Look, if you will, at Luke chapter 11. Begin reading with me in verse 1. And the Bible says, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John also taught his disciples. And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. Give us day by day our daily bread. 
And forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend, and shall go unto him at midnight, and say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his importunity he will rise and give him as many as he needeth. I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he for a, a stone give him? Uh, uh, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask, shall ask a fish, will he for a fish give him a serpent? Or if he shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him? We're going to look at this simple question this evening, Lord. This simple request, Lord, teach us to pray. Christian, it comes, it comes only at the end of a desire to pray better, but it also comes at the end of an admittance that our prayer life is not what it ought to be. I want you to look at this passage with me as the Lord is going to teach, and then he's going to use some examples that if we were teenagers in today's society, we would call his examples no-brainers. He's going to use examples that are so simple and so easy that everyone would agree with them. And then teach us a lesson that should bring us directly to our knees before he's finished. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin looking at this passage of Scripture. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. Lord, we thank you for our time in your house. Lord, we pray tonight that you'll bless the message. We pray that you'll have your will and way in our hearts. Father, help us to desire to have a prayer life that is greater than what we have now. Help us to desire to have more answered prayers. Help us to be willing to do what is necessary and be willing to be taught. Father, have your will and your way in our hearts tonight, for it's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. I want you to notice first the example that we see in this passage of Scripture. The example that we see. Watch as the passage begins, Jesus is praying. Now, Jesus did not pray like you and I pray. By the way, the first point, if you're taking notes, is the exhibition. Uh, the exhibition, not the example. I got my, my E's out of order. So that way you know it's, uh, that, that it's, a, it's a main point if it has an E. So you're pretty good on that, all right? But the truth of the matter is Jesus is praying. Jesus did not pray like you and I pray. Jesus, who was co-equal, as we mentioned this morning, and coexistent with Almighty God, still spoke to His heavenly Father at length. The night before He called His 12 disciples, He prayed all night long. After the feeding of the 5,000, He went up into a high mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, He was there alone. For hours He's been there alone praying on the mountaintop. Jesus did not just pray for a little while. And the disciples are listening to him pray. Now, this disciple is not saying, Dear Lord, I want you to teach me academically how to be a better prayer. He's not just saying, Lord, I want you to tell me what John taught his disciples. Because the truth of the matter is, he could have asked the other disciples and found out exactly what John taught his disciples about prayer. He's not really even saying, Lord, teach us to pray. What he's truthfully saying is more along this line, Lord, teach us to pray like that. 
My prayer life doesn't sound anything like what I just heard. Jesus has been praying. They've been waiting for him to finish. And this disciple standing there with his burning heart hearing Jesus pray in a manner that this disciple has never even dreamed of praying before. And he says, Lord, teach us to pray like you do. I want you to notice that there are certain people in our lives, and maybe you've met a few. I know I have. Sometimes it's a little old lady, a little old shut-in lady that the pastor has taken me to visit. And when she gets down on her knees and she begins to pray, it's as if she somehow, and I can't explain it, but you understand what I'm talking about, somehow she has a, a greater access to God than you do. And you sit there and say, boy, I wish I could pray like that. Wish I could pray like Moses in Exodus 33 and verse 11. And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh to his friend. Or like Elijah did on Mount Carmel when the Bible tells us that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I remember one time when I was back for my second year at Tennessee Temple University. What an apropos place to tell this illustration. From Sissonville, West Virginia, my pastor... Uh, I decided that I was going to start dating my pastor's daughter. And that was just fine in Sissonville, West Virginia. I'm a 128-pound preacher boy, and preacher boys aren't very plentiful in Sissonville, West Virginia. So my pastor's wife, my girlfriend's mother, was okay with me dating, with her dating this one scrawny little preacher boy uh, there from Sissonville, West Virginia. But when we went off to Tennessee Temple... My wife's, uh, my girlfriend's mother decided that even though there was slim picking in Sissonville, there was a whole lot more options once you got to Tennessee Temple University. There were 4,000 or so students at the time, and several, uh, 2,000 of them were men, and hundreds of them were preacher boys. So as, as the story goes, I was the only preacher boy in our church at the time. That's the only option she had to date a preacher boy. But when we got to Tennessee Temple, there were lots more options. And whereas I was an attractive option in Sissonville, I was not an attractive option in Chattanooga, Tennessee. My wife's girlfriend began to try to convince her to break up with me. There were bigger fish to be caught there at Tennessee Temple University. Finally, after several months of that, my girlfriend succumbed and decided she was going to break up with me. She told her mother, she said this, I'm going to break up with him, but if we get back together, she said, it'll be forever. She broke up with me. I believe it was on a Friday or a Saturday. I'm not sure. All weekend long, I was in turmoil. I didn't know where to turn. I couldn't turn to my home pastor. So I came up with an idea, Brother Bragg. I decided I was going to go to the pastor, my pastor of Highland Park Baptist Church. I went to the office of Dr. Lee Robertson on a Monday morning uh, after my first class. And I, wait, I walked up and Miss Dorothy was the uh, secretary at the time. And I said, I would like to see Dr. Robertson. She said, why? I basically told her I'm a lovesick 19-year-old boy because my girlfriend broke up with me. Do you know she didn't laugh me to scorn or make fun of me? And by the way, excuse me for grinding an axe just a little bit for just a moment. I have heard many stories of famous, quote-unquote, fundamental preachers that pastor a church and spend most of their time away from their church. And if you go to them to get counsel from your pastor, oftentimes you have to wait for months to get an audience with this great preacher. That's not a pastor of a church, if you ask me. 
Dr. Robertson was pastoring a church that ran, depending on the Sunday, anywhere from seven to 10,000 people, 72 chapels under his leadership, 4,000 students in the college. That doesn't count the Bible school. That doesn't count the seminary. That doesn't count the high school and the grade school, and yet still had a full schedule. But I didn't wait for months as a 19-year-old lovesick, forlorn boy waiting to talk to my pastor. Fifteen minutes later, I'm ushered into the office of Dr. Lee Robertson. I told him my problem. Surprisingly, he did not turn to the simple one verse in the Bible that says, if thou art a lovesick young man, then do this. There was no verse. He had no biblical counsel to give me. But do you know what he did, Brother Parker? We got down on our knees together. And he prayed with me. And I could not help but sit there, kneel there, and listen to him pray and think, I wish I could pray like that. I wish I had access to God like he does. Now, we understand the simple truth of Scripture that we do have the same access, but you know exactly what I'm talking about. We finished praying. I left. There's just something about it. I just felt better. Within a couple of weeks, my girlfriend decided that uh, the pickings weren't as slim in Sissonville, West Virginia, as her mother thought they were, and we got back together. As soon as we got back together, I opened up a little velvet box, took her up to Signal Mountain, got down on one knee and proposed, and she said yes. (laughs) That Sunday night after that, we walked up on the platform. I was just dumb enough to think it was okay to walk up on the platform at Highland Park Baptist Church. Dr. Robertson was still standing there. I took her, I more or less drug her up the steps. She said, no, no, no. I said, come on, we've got to talk, talk to him. We walked up and I said, Dr. Robertson, I said, do you remember praying with me just a couple of weeks ago about my girlfriend? He said, I remember very well, remember very well, just like that. And I said, well, Dr. Robertson, let me show you something. I grabbed her left hand and I held it up like this. And there was a diamond ring on her left hand. This is exactly what he did. He said, Oh, my. And then he said, I didn't know my prayers worked that well. (laughs) But the truth of the matter is, this disciple stands there, and he hears the master praying. And it burdens and breaks his heart, and he says, Lord, teach us to pray. What we're doing doesn't compare to what you just did. Oh, we can talk to God. We know we can talk to God. But what you just did, what I just heard you do, is something so different and so much more powerful and so much more intimate. I don't want to pray like I pray anymore. I want to pray like you pray, Lord, from now on. And Jesus doesn't say, well, wait a minute. You have to work on that for a while. Twelve steps that you have to go through before you can pray like that. No, immediately. Immediately, he begins to teach. Notice the exhibition number two, the example. He gives them what is often mistakenly referred to, we know this, as the Lord's Prayer. The simple truth of the matter is the Lord's Prayer is in uh, John chapter 17. If you want to read it, go there. That's where the Lord is praying specifically for his disciples. But in this passage, it's more of a model prayer. It's not something that's to be quoted. I do preach in a church and have for 25 years that every Sunday before in their opening assembly for Sunday school, they quote the Matthew uh, version of the, the model prayer. You say, Brother Harper, is that wrong that they do that? How can quoting Scripture on a Sunday morning be a wrong thing, Christian. That just doesn't make any sense. But let's be careful that we don't recite. We, we almost mock other churches, do we not, for reciting prayers. 
other denominations who say the same thing and all the repetition. And yet we do the same thing, do we not? Do not we as Bible-believing Christians, don't we have some memorized prayers? There's the memorized prayer for the meal. Father, we thank you for this food. We pray that you'll bless it and nourish from our bodies. Bless the hands that prepared it in Jesus' name. Amen. How many times have you heard that prayer word for word in your life? It's in the thousands. There's the memorized offering prayer. The Lord, we ask you to bless this offering, bless the gift and the giver. May the offering be used for the furtherance of the gospel around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. We've got our own little memorized prayers, do we not? I remember years ago, my father-in-law was pastoring still at Maranatha Baptist Church, and it was the Sunday before Christmas, and our regular pianist was gone. You may not realize this here at Lakewood Baptist Church. You may uh, not, not have the privilege of traveling as often as some of us do, but your church is piano rich. I mean, if you're if you're a first-string pianist, Miss Bragg, by the way, I winked at your wife tonight because she played the piano so well. I don't know if she noticed that, but I wanted to apologize to you before I went any further. But if Mrs. Bragg isn't playing, then someone else is playing, and it don't even drop off. Now, in our old home church, we had a pianist named Debbie Cook. Now, Debbie Cook is a pretty good piano player, right? She's not fancy, but she is, uh, she's a very good piano player. Now, after her is our second string piano player, and her name is Mary Palla. Now, Debbie, if we're going to graph this, in, in this church, you have your first string piano player, your second string piano player, your third string piano player, your fourth string, and I don't know how many you've got. But in our church back then, Debbie Cook was our first string piano player. Mary Palla was our second string piano player. And that's not exaggerating the difference in their abilities at the piano. And if Mary Palla were here tonight, since I've known her for 40 years, she would tell you the exact same thing and would not have a single problem with me using her in this illustration. The Sunday, uh, uh, on that Sunday, my brother-in-law had broken his ankle. And so he was over the choir. He directed the choir. He directed the congregational singing. And if the PA messed up, he was the one that fixed it. Now he's sitting in the back with his foot in a cast up on a chair while the service begins to fall apart. Because our second string choir director was also our second string song leader. So we couldn't have him do both jobs. So we had our second string song leader, our third string choir leader with our second string pianist. Nobody started on the right key. Nobody started at the right time. All the timing was off. It was terrible. And while that was all going on, the PA was making those noises that PAs do, those screeches and squeaks and feedbacks. This whole service was almost comical in this whole variety of errors that was going on. Finally, my father-in-law got control of the service. Experienced pastors know how to do that. So finally, after everything got back to normal, he called the men up to the front to take the offering, and he called on the man that was standing right here. I'll not mention his name. He asked him, he said, Brother so-and-so, would you pray for the offering? And I'll never forget, in that service that had gone so wrong, what this dear brother said. He said, Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for this food. We pray that you'll bless it to the nourish of our bodies. Bless the hands that prepared it. In Jesus' name, amen. Yes, Christian, he said the offering prayer. By the way, if he had prayed the right prayer, and said, he prayed the food prayer, if he had prayed the offering prayer, it wouldn't have had any more chance of being effective because we're told in Jeremiah chapter 29 in verse 11, ye shall seek me and ye shall find me when you search for me with all your heart.
We don't have, we shouldn't use our memorized prayers, although we do, but Jesus begins to teach them an example of prayer. This is the skeleton, the framework of prayer. It is not a word for word prayer that we're supposed to offer. Notice what it says, please. And he said unto them, When you pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth. I want you to notice the first part of this example of prayer is praise. Is praise. Do you know, Christian, we leave that completely out, do we not? When you come to a church service, we describe the song service as the praise time. And to hear most Christians describe it, you would think the only way to praise God is with instrumentality, melody, and harmony. You would think that only music is the avenue that God uses for us to allow, to allow us to praise Him. Now, it is certainly an ironclad truth of Scripture that singing is a way to praise the Lord. As a matter of fact, it's so ironclad that in Hebrews chapter 2, it is Jesus Himself standing in the midst of the congregation singing praise to the Lord. We do understand that. What we've forgotten is that prayer is an avenue of praise. We've forgotten that prayer is a time to praise our Lord. You'll notice all the things that he says here in this passage for us to say to the Lord, to tell him how holy he is, tell him how sovereign he is, tell him how mighty he is, his kingdom is coming, his will is going to be done, his name is holy. By the way, all of those things are true whether you or I ever pray it or not, aren't they? His name will always be holy. His will will always be done. And His kingdom is still going to come, whether we pray for it or not. So why does Jesus tell us to spend the first portion of our prayer just praising our God? Because God deserves it. Listen to me carefully. You will change your prayer life forever. Do it once a year, once a month, once a week. It doesn't make any difference. You'll change your prayer life forever. If you go to your prayer closet and you take your prayer list and there's absolutely nothing wrong with a prayer list, you take your prayer list and you leave it outside. You go inside your prayer closet and you close the door and you say, Lord, I didn't come to ask you for my finances. I didn't come to ask you to bless my family. I didn't come to ask you to guide my future. Lord, I came in here tonight with no list in my hand. I came in here this morning with... No request to be offered. I just came to tell you how wonderful you are and how matchless you are and how holy you are and how gracious you are and how mighty you are and how loving you are and how sovereign you are and how wonderful everything about you is. Lord, I can't explain you. I can't describe you, but I can thank you for being you. You'll change your prayer life forever if you'll go into your prayer closet every now and then and just spend a little while praising your almighty God. Notice, please, he starts with praise, but then he starts talking about our petitions, our provision, I'm sorry. Give us, day by day, our daily bread. This is the truth, is it not, Christian? We would not even think about praying for bread. We just take it for granted. As a matter of fact, I know I understand the sentiment. I almost agree with the sentiment, but it's just an unbiblical thing, isn't it? Men will stand up, maybe not as much in today's society as they did when I was growing up. A man will stand up and say, I'm the bread winner. No, you're not. God's the bread provider. We don't even think about praying for bread. Bread wasn't expensive in Bible times. Certain types of bread were, but barley loaves were next to nothing. That's why the little lad had five small barley loaves because they were the cheapest kind of bread you could buy. 
We wouldn't even think about saying, Lord, give us bread. Notice he doesn't say, dear Lord, give us a month's worth of bread. We're good at praying that way, aren't we? We're good at asking on the first of the month that God would give us enough money to make it through the end of the month. But that's not how Jesus is teaching us to pray. He's teaching us to ask every single day. Give us day by day our daily bread. Follow this carefully. If you pray today for bread, you get to pray again tomorrow for bread. But there's something else here that I think we miss sometimes. You get to also say thank you tomorrow for the bread that God provided yesterday. The truth of the matter is we're good at praying about the big things. I've heard Christians actually say that. I just pray about the big things. That's almost comical when you stop and think about it. If you walked up to your mailbox tomorrow and found the bill in your mailbox tomorrow for $250,000 that had to be paid by Friday and you have no way at all of coming up with $250,000, and you get down on your knees and you say, Lord, I need $250,000 by Friday, how many of you think that in heaven Jesus would sit there on his throne and say, Whoa, $250,000? How am I going to come up with that? How many of you think, and say amen if you really do believe it, how many of you think that if... He chose to do so. He could provide you $250,000 like that. So you know what? That's not a big prayer request. You've never had a prayer request that made God stammer and stutter when it came time to answering it. You've never had a prayer request that taxed the, for the healing abilities of Almighty God or the provision that He has. You've never had a big prayer request. That's why the Bible doesn't say pray about the big things. It says be careful for nothing but in everything. Now there's a difference there between everything and everything, isn't there? If you pray for every missionary, it's dear Lord bless all the missionaries in all the world in Jesus' name, amen. But if you're praying for every individual missionary that takes a little bit longer doesn't it that's a little bit more intense isn't it he says in everything with prayer and supplication let your requests be made known unto God God doesn't want us to pray about just the big things and he doesn't care what our definition of big and little are he wants us to pray about everything give us day by day our daily bread Notice, not just praise, not just, uh, not just uh, pr- uh, provision, but number three, notice, please, uh, uh, our perfection, if you are purity, if you will, verse four. And, and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. That's something we leave out of our prayer time almost completely, isn't, isn't it? You know, your prayer time is almost useless if that's not in there. Psalm 66 and verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Isaiah 59 in verse 2, but your sins have separated between you and your God and your iniquities have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Isaiah 64 in verse 7, thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquity. John chapter 9 in verse 31, now we know that God heareth not sinners. The truth of the matter is this moment of praying for our forgiveness, this moment of saying, forgive us our sins, that's an important part of every single prayer that we should ever pray, isn't it? I've said for years there are two prayers that are guaranteed not only to be answered, but to be answered with a yes. Did you know that? The first prayer is when a lost person 
who realizes he's a sinner and realizes he needs a savior and a repentant lost person, whether he says it like the publican and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, or whether he says it like the thief on the cross, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. Jesus said, he that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. You know, there's a prayer the Christian can pray that's always answered yes. It's the prayer of confession. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't forgive us because we're good enough. He forgives us because he's God enough. Notice, please, this, this, the only reason to have unconfessed sin in our lives is because we're too proud to confess it. Because if we confess it, he'll forgive it every single time. Notice, please, there's the prayer of praise. There's the prayer for provision. There's the prayer uh, for, uh, for, uh, for uh, perfection or whatever I said it was a while ago. I don't care. And, then, no, no. and there's also the prayer for protection. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There are two different sides to this. Do you realize if we're following him, he'll never lead us into temptation? Like that wonderful shepherd psalm, Psalm 23. As long as we stay with the shepherd, we stay on the path of righteousness, the path of green pastures, and the path of still waters. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It seems as if the acknowledgement is there that we're supposed to acknowledge that, yes, as long as we follow you, we'll not go into temptation, but we're going to not follow you every now and then. We're going to go into temptation, and he's still gracious enough to deliver us from evil. He is still faithful that He will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we're able. But with the temptation, He also maketh the way of escape that we middle bear in. What a prayer. Brother Harper, if I memorize this and quote it every single day, would that be right? No, no, no. This is just the crib notes, if you will. This is just the example of how we're supposed to pray, the things we're supposed to talk to the Lord about. In this passage of Scripture, we see the exhibition of prayer. We see the example of prayer. But number three, quickly, we see the expectation of prayer. Now, Jesus is going to use some. He used not just parables, but he did use illustrations. Remember the 18 that died at the the tower fell in Siloam? That's an illustration, not a parable. These are illustrations, not parables. And he uses illustrations that everybody listening to him is going to understand. He said, you have a friend that comes in from out of town at midnight. And so you go to your next door neighbor's house because you don't have any bread to offer. By the way, this man that has to go to his neighbor's house is going to be in trouble by his neighbor, but he's already in trouble by his wife, don't you think? My wife used to suffer from what we thought was an incurable disease. We called it pre-company freakout. If we had company coming, we would have to open drawers, empty everything out of the drawer, clean everything that was in the drawer, and put it back in after it had been cleaned. Now, it wasn't quite that bad, but it was pretty bad if company was coming. Everything had to be perfect if company was coming. Now, she got over that about six or seven years ago, and strangely, it coincided with the time that I decided to start helping more around the house. So I don't know that I'm the cause of pre-company freakout, but I'm certainly a carrier. But can you imagine the neighbor, your friend coming in from out of town and you don't have any food? Can you imagine what that wife has said? I told you to go to the store. <laughs> so now he goes next door and he knocks on his neighbor's house. And his neighbor says, no, I'm not getting out of bed. My kids are asleep. The door is locked. I'm not giving you anything at all. Go away and leave me alone. 
And Jesus says, well, he won't rise and give him because of his, he's his friend, because of his importunity. You know what importunity is? Let me show you. Let me demonstrate importunity. I need some bread. I've got company from out of town. They showed up. I wasn't expecting them. Go away. Go away. I'm not getting out of bed. I'm already in bed. No, no, you don't understand. I need some bread. I really need bread really bad. My kids are asleep. Not for long. The door is locked. It'll unlock. And you just keep knocking and knocking and knocking and knocking until this guy gets out of bed, opens up the door, leads you into the pantry and says, take all the bread that you want. Jesus uses another example in Luke chapter 18 and verse 1 when it says this, The Lord spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, and begins to tell the story of an unjust judge. And this widow woman has been cheated, and she keeps going to this unjust judge, and he's not inclined to help her. And, but finally he says, listen, I'm going to do what she asks. And he says this, lest by her continual coming she weary me. The neighbor that doesn't want to give bread will finally give it if you ask often enough. The judge that doesn't want to do the right thing will finally do it if you ask often enough. But a God that already desires to answer prayer, we ask Him once and we move on. 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 11, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. Importunity means just ask and keep on asking. Then we get those, those directives from our Savior uh, when He says, Ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. And you know enough about this to know that those are perpetual actions. He's not just saying ask one time. He's saying ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. And knock and keep on knocking. We ask the Lord and expect an immediate answer. And if we don't get an immediate answer, we give up on prayer. Is that not what we do? See, we're supposed to keep asking until we get an answer. Do you know when you're supposed to stop praying? When God has answered. It's just that simple. Now, God can, in fact, answer three ways. You know this. He can say yes, he can say no, or he can say wait. But by the way, even if he says wait, we shouldn't stop praying until we get that yes or that no. We're so selfish, though, that we think if God says no, he's being a bully. We fail to draw the comparison to parents as Jesus is going to do here in this passage of Scripture. When you told your child no when they were growing up, were you doing it just to be mean? When your son went to cross the street without looking both ways and you snatched him and said no, were you just doing that because you didn't want him to enjoy the exhilaration of dodging traffic? Or did you say no because you loved him and knew what was best for him? When your daughter was going to touch something hot and you said no, were you just trying to control her or were you trying to protect her? See, the simple truth of the matter is that Almighty God who loves us with a love that we can't describe and knows the end from the beginning, when He says no, He's not just saying no to be mean. He's saying no because it's the best thing for you. Even if you and I don't think it's the best thing. The Apostle Paul besought the Lord thrice that he might remove from him his thorn in the flesh. You know what God's answer was? No. You know what Paul said? I quit. That's it. I'm done. I mean, I've been stoned and left for dead. I've been lowered down the wall of the city in a basket. I've been beaten five times with 40 stripes, save one, thrice. I've suffered shipwreck. Thrice I've been beaten with rods a night and a day. I've been in the deep. My whole life has been terrible. I asked God for one thing, one little thorn in the flesh to go away so I could serve him better. And God says, no, this prayer thing doesn't work. I quit. Right? 
No, what Paul said was, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmity. It's an important statement to remember that a no from heaven is still an answer from God. By the way, sometimes when he says no, he's just saying no to one prayer, not to all of them. Jeremiah 33 and verse 3, Call unto me and I will answer thee. And then it says this, And show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. You study that passage of Scripture because it's difficult to understand how great and mighty things could happen. I wouldn't know them. The which thou knowest not comes before the asking. In other words, he's saying, I will show you things that you didn't even think to ask about. I'll give you an illustration about that. Several years ago, my, my younger brother, my littlest brother, just took about a year ago uh, First Calvary Baptist Church in Hampton, Virginia. He's been pastoring there for a little while. But we've been going to that church for, I think, 15 years. And about 10 years ago... We went there, and I was preaching. I finished preaching on Monday night, and as I'm shaking hands with everyone, an 82-year-old retired brigadier general in the Army came up to me, and he said, Brother Harper, do you have a minute that we can pray together? I said, Brother, I certainly do. We could do that right now, but I said, if you wouldn't mind, there's still a few people standing in the line. If you wouldn't mind waiting just a few minutes, I'll shake a few more hands, and then we'll go and pray together. He said, No, that's absolutely fine. I'm not in any hurry. After I finished shaking a few hands, we walked there from the, the, the entryway of the church. There's a set of steps off to the, the left there as you come out of the auditorium, and it goes up into a fellowship hall. And if you walk all the way across the fellowship hall, there's a little tiny room that they call the church library. It's just big enough for two men to stand in. So we walked in there, and I said, Brother, what are we praying about? And this is what he told me. He said, About five years ago, they removed my left kidney because I had cancer. He said, now they're telling me that I've got tumors in my right kidney. I said, yes, sir. He said, tomorrow morning I'm going to the doctor and they're going to put dye in and tell me how bad the cancer is. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, when I went through this the first time, they must have been using a different kind of dye than they use today. By the way, for those of you with medical background, it's probably not that they ever changed the dye at the VA hospital. It's probably that with only one kidney, his body can't filter the dye like it did before. Either way, he said, and I just want them to use the old dye because it didn't make me sick. And he said, I'm afraid if they use the new dye in the morning, I'll be too sick to come to church tomorrow night. An 82-year-old man with, one, with cancer in his only functioning kidney was worried about being too sick to come to church on a Tuesday night of a revival. I would guess that we have a lot of Christians that miss Tuesday nights of revivals for far less of an excuse than that. I remember when I said, when I prayed, I said, Dear Lord, we know that the heart of the king is in your hand. I said, Lord, if it be your will, the pharmacy will run out of the new dye tonight, and they'll have to do the procedure with the old dye tomorrow. I said, Lord, if it be your will, the doctor will write the prescription for the old dye and not the new dye when they begin to do the procedure. And I said, Lord, if neither of those can happen, Lord, I just ask that you protect my brother so that he doesn't get sick and doesn't feel too sick to come to church tomorrow night. We hugged each other's necks and we walked out. I walked in the next night about 6.15. My trailer was parked out the side. Walked in the side door there. And as you walk in, on your right is the church nursery. And both of the walls are cinder block walls. And on the left is the men's restroom first and the ladies' restroom. As I walked in, this man was walking out of the men's restroom. He'd been sick. He'd actually been sick all day long. His face was almost completely pale and white. He only had a little color around his lips, and it was blue. 
He'd been sick in the bathroom and was leaning up against the cinder block wall to cool himself down just a little bit. When I saw that, Brother Nutt, I got a little bit upset. And in my heart, I said, Lord, I don't understand. All he wanted to do was feel like coming to church. I don't know why you wouldn't answer that prayer, Lord. I was almost immediately convicted. This man's shown up on a Tuesday night to hear me preach, and here I am arguing with God. And by the way, who do I think I am arguing with God? I looked at him. I tried to make light of it as much as I can, Brother Andrew. I said, Brother, didn't they use the right dye just like that? And he looked at me, and he just shook his head no. And then if you weren't paying close attention, you wouldn't have noticed the corners of his mouth turn up just a little bit. And he looked at me and he said, you know, Brother Harper, they didn't find any cancer either. Wait, 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 wait. We didn't even pray about that. We didn't even ask God. Neither one of us in that room asked God to take away the cancer, to let the skin come back perfectly clean. We didn't even pray about that. We said, Lord, can they use the right dye tomorrow? And God said, no. I'll tell you what. I'm going to do great and mighty things that you didn't even ask for. You know, when God does great and mighty things, you can't give the credit to a doctor, a lawyer, a preacher. You can't give the credit to anybody else but Almighty God. So Christian, even if he says no, there might be great and mighty things around your corner. Notice the second example, a series of examples that the Lord is going to give. He said, if a son, verse 11, if a son shall shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will he give him a stone? If he shall ask a fish, will he, get, for, he for a fish give him a serpent? If he ask, shall ask an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? Now, Jesus is not saying here, if your son asks for bread and you can't afford bread, you might not be able to give him bread when he asks for it. He's not saying that. He might not be able to, he's not saying that you might not be able to provide him an egg or a fish when he wants a fish. No, no, he's describing the opposite of answering the request, isn't he? Not just, am I not going to give him bread? Your son comes to you and says, listen, I'd like to have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, I can't help you right now, but I got a rock. You have to understand that everybody listening to this is almost rolling their eyes, don't you think? They're sitting there. This is such an elementary lesson that the Lord is teaching. If if your son asks you for bread, you know what you're going to do as a parent all over this auditorium or as a grandparent all over this auditorium? You are going to do every single thing within your power to provide him bread. You might every now and then have to say, son, I couldn't afford any bread today. But you're never going to say, well, I'm not only not going to give you bread, I'm going to give you a rock. And instead of a fish, eh, i got this copperhead in my pocket I can give you. Instead of an egg, I've got a scorpion here. Wouldn't you like that better than a scrambled egg this morning? No, every, every parent that's listening to this, every man that's listening to this is sitting there thinking, well, of course not. I know better than that. If my son wants bread, I'm going to get him bread, whatever I have to do. If he wants an egg, that's not that bad. I'm going to get him an egg. I might not be able to give him every single thing he wants growing up, but some bread and an egg and a fish every now and then, I can do that as a dad. That's what I'm going to do. I would never give him a scorpion or a serpent or a stone. No, of course not. We as parents, do we not, excuse me for using the term, take a great deal of pride in providing for our children? Do we not look at them and say, you know, I might not have been able to provide you the best that was out there, but I provided you the absolute best, absolutely best that I could. 
remember years ago when my daughter, about that same time, matter of fact, just a couple of months before the Rose Bowl story you heard this morning, my daughter came into my office the first week of November. She'd gotten a piece of mail addressed to her. When a four-year-old gets a piece of mail, by the way, if you're under the age of 30, mail is that stuff, it's paper, all right? And it comes to a box outside. It's not, it doesn't have an E in front of it. It's just mail. She'd gotten what she thought was a magazine. What it really was was a catalog for a famous doll company. And she'd been sleeping with that doll uh, magazine or catalog under her bed. Every day when she had time, she would look at it and she would circle the things that she wanted. By the time she came into my office that first week of November, she had circled literally everything in that entire catalog. She walked in. She walked behind my desk where I'm sitting. She took her little magazine that was all dog-eared and bent up and chewed up and all that kind of stuff because she's sleeping with it under her pillow every night. And she laid it on my desk. I'll never forget her little hands as she smoothed it out for me. Then she climbed on my lap and she put her arm around my neck and she said, Hi, Daddy. She said, I think I want this doll for Christmas. Now, I began to look because I'm a man. I know how much dolls cost. I knew how much dolls costed back then. I've been to Walmart. I know how much a doll costs. And so I began to look in this catalog because if it's something that I could provide, I was going to provide. I began looking through this catalog to try to find an S with a line through it, Brother Godfrey. I'm looking for a dollar symbol. That's what I want to see. I want to know how much this doll is going to cost me. When I finally found the S with the line through it and the numbers afterward, I thought that was unusual that they were using a dollar symbol in their stock numbers. Dolls don't cost that much money. That's ridiculous. I can go to Walmart, buy you a doll for $15, and you bring this to me. I said, Charity, I'm not going to buy you a doll that costs that much money. I said, matter of fact, I'm going to pick up the phone. By, by the way, I grew up in an era when the phones were on the wall and TVs weren't, if you know what I'm saying, all right? I said, I'm going to use this phone right here. I'm going to call your grandparents, and I'm going to tell them not to buy you a doll that costs that much money for Christmas. She kissed me on my cheek. She told me goodnight. She told me she loved me. She stood beside of me and picked up her little magazine and carried it very gingerly. And I remember as she walked to the door of my office, she stopped and did this. She went, And walked out, little Miss Drama Queen. As she walked out, Brother Parker, I grabbed the mouse on my computer there and I went online and I ordered the doll. By the way, all the wives in this room knew where that story was going because those little girls have us wrapped around their fingers. When it came in, I wrapped it. Now, I don't wrap very many presents. I'm not a good wrapper, especially musically. But also when it comes to presents, I'm not a good wrapper. I'm I'm one of those people, and maybe some of you men agree with me, that I believe that if every square inch of that package isn't covered with tape, that it is going to somehow spontaneously open before Christmas. So when I wrap a present, I get a personal thank you note from the, uh, the president of the Scotch Tape Company thanking me for wrapping a present. I use almost a whole spool in wrapping one present. My wife can wrap seven presents with a piece of tape this big. I don't know how she does it. I can't figure it out. So I've wrapped this present. I put another name under it. I put it under the tree. Christmas came. We're in the floor. Uh, Packages are everywhere. Bows and and bells and all the wrapping papers everywhere. Presents are everywhere. I'm not sure what I got that year. I don't don't remember what I got that year. I'm sure I got a wallet because the height of irony is our children buy us wallets for Christmas. 
I probably got some kind of cologne and maybe some cufflinks. That's what I get just about every single year. That's what I ask for every year, so that's what I get. I don't remember what I got that year. But after we'd opened everything and Charity has this nice smile on her face and she's content and she's not in any way disappointed. If we'd have stopped right there, she'd have been fine. But I said, Charity, that last present under the tree, that's not for your cousin that I made up. That's for me. She crawled under the tree and she started opening it. Brother Bragg, it took a few moments because there was a lot of tape. (laughs) But after a few moments, she opened up enough of it that she could see the doll's face. She dropped it. Ran across the floor, jumped in my lap and wrapped those skinny little bony arms around my neck and kissed me on my cheek and she said, thank you, Daddy. I love you. Merry Christmas. You know what? I don't remember what I got for that Christmas, but I'll never forget that hug. Why? She asked for bread. I provided bread. She asked for a fish and I got her a fish. She asked for uh, an egg and I got her an egg. Because I'm a dad. That's what dads do. But notice what he says next. If ye then, being evil. By the way, don't you love how the Bible continues to remind us of that? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give unto the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? With my limited resources, I did everything as a father to provide for my daughter. With your limited resources, you've done absolutely everything that you can to provide for your children and your grandchildren. But the Almighty God, who doesn't have any limits to His resources, who isn't evil, who is perfect, who knows what we need, what's the best thing for us, and how to give us the best thing for us. How much more? If you and I know that bread equals bread, What does it equal to Almighty God? If you and I say a fish equals a fish, what does it equal to Him? See, the problem isn't, Christian, that we're not willing to admit that we don't have the prayer life that we ought to have. The problem is we're just not willing to ask. Because if we ask, He'll teach us. The problem is we're not willing to try to improve by just asking a simple question of the Master, Lord, teach us to pray. What would we accomplish for the cause of Christ if, as we said in Sunday school this morning, it's not just this mind that was in Christ that we have, but what if we prayed like He prayed? Turning the world upside down for God? That's not much for a bunch of prayer warriors that pray like Jesus prayed. We're willing to admit that our prayer life isn't what it ought to be. What are we willing to ask? Teach us to pray. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed, no one looking around. Just a simple message. I dare say there was nothing in this message that you haven't heard dozens of times over the years. I just asked tonight, if you're here today and you're... There's never been a time you've asked Jesus to save you. There's never been a time you've asked Him to forgive your sins. Why not do that tonight? If you ask, He'll do it. How many would say, Brother Harper, I'm not sure if I died today I'd go to heaven, but I'd like to know that tonight. Would you slip your hand up, please? 
all over the auditorium from the front to the back. I'm not sure, but I'd like to be. I kind of thought we were mostly home folks tonight. But how many people tonight would say, Brother Harper, I want him to teach me to pray. It may hurt. It may call some correction. It'll definitely call some humility. But I want him to teach me to pray. Would you slip your hand up, please, all over the auditorium? Thank you so much. You may put your hands down. Just a moment, we're going to pray. After we pray, we're going to stand. And after we stand, I'm going to signal Mrs. Bragg, and she's going to begin to play. In just a few moments, you'll hear that first note of the piano. If you slipped your hand up, why not step out? Can I remind you that there were 11 disciples that didn't step out in this story? Only one. The whole story starts when one disciple steps out of his comfort zone. So in just a moment, after I give a signal to Mrs. Bragg and she begins to play, won't you step out? If you want him to teach you to pray, step out on the first note.